Hey guys, if you're on Spotify right now, please hit that follow button and leave a five-star review. It's a huge, huge help, so thank you to everyone who's already done that. As always, the Patreon link is in the show description as well as in the description to this episode. Hope to see more of you over there. And that said, please enjoy this episode with the Escobar Hunter, Mr. Ken McGee. He utilized family members. If you recall, when you hear the story about me following the family to Germany, getting the family kicked out of Germany was a catalyst for Pablo going down. Because he got so angry, he started making phone calls. He called the German embassy, threatened to blow it up. He called his son, and all those calls were being monitored because his son was placed in a hotel, and so the phone calls were being able to be triangulated. It was his temper that caused him to eventually go down. Camarena was killed by the Mexican cartels. It's one of the longest investigations DEA has ever had. The case is still open. Prior to us capturing Rene Benitez, that was the longest case ever open until I caught that guy. But Kiki Camarena's case is still open. And what happens is the reason people like Pablo Escobar, Cali Cartel, and Medellin Cartel are hesitant about harming a DEA agent is because they knew. Remember what I talked to you about that rule earlier? Mm. We won't kill you if you don't kill us unless it's a situation where violence occurs. They realized that if they killed an agent, they would undercome the wrath of the government 10 times stronger than it already was. So, And that's what happened with Kiki Camarena. They have not stopped that investigation to this day. Well, I assume you know some of the background there. As far as like why that might not be getting fully solved or fully litigated. I've watched that documentary, documentary too, and there's a lot of different angles we could take off of that. And uh, let's not go there today. But okay. I will. But I will tell you that there are some allegations there was corruption. I don't quite believe that with the agent. Number one, is there a way to deny that the guy who was torturing him in, and for people who aren't familiar with the story of Kiki Camarena, he was a DEA agent in working in Mexico in the eighties. He was abducted, tortured, and then killed by the cartels. And that's the very truncated short way of putting it. But Mm -hmm. the, I forget the, maybe it was something Rodriguez yeah, or Jose yeah. something, but yeah. there was... Felix. Or- Felix Rodriguez, that's it. The man who tortured him, I think he was doing the torturing, in the safe house, which he was then killed, was revealed to be a a CIA asset. I've Is there watched, anything to I, I, deny that? I have watched the same thing, and what I did, when Kiki was killed, it was um, I was a brand new agent. And so I wasn't in Mexico, but obviously they use, you learn the story over and over and over and over and you study it and you're educated about it and, and you learn from that case. And that story came out, uh, about the CIA operative that supposedly tortured him. And, and that CIA operative has denied it many, many times over. Um, I don't know. I can tell you this. Remember that senior officer that agent that told me i'm assigning you to the swat team because i want you to create the swat team and he's in that special he's one of the people that believe that theory that there was there was something wrong 
And I've never talked to him about it since. I've lost touch with the gentleman. But, well, what I did was I'd never heard of that CIA operative. I Googled it and I read all about the guy as well. And I hear he denies it. And I hear he's been honored by presidents and all that stuff. I don't know. But I will tell you this. Uh, Part of that allegation is that uh, the head of the DEA office in Guadalajara was crooked and that tipped off the cartel as to where Kiki was and all that. Uh, the gentleman's name was, the agent's name was, I believe, Kirkendall. Yes. I highly doubt that. I highly doubt the head of the Mexican office, uh, Guadalajara Aro resident office, tipped off the cartel as to where Kiki Camarena was going to be at a given time so he could be kidnapped, brutalized, tortured for several days. Two other, two or three other people died during that as well. And his body was dumped. I highly, highly, highly doubt it. Is that the be- part about the CIA operative torturing him, that's a whole nother story. That's not saying the okay, DEA okay. guy operated with the CIA yeah, guy. And, and was like- that CIA guy there? I don't know. I, I have no idea. Could it have happened? Absolutely. But do I believe... I would I would bet a paycheck or two or three that Kirkendall was a very honest guy. I would not You didn't bet know him personally though, right? Kirkendall, I might have met him sometime over the years because right. keep in mind I was a young 20s and he's a senior senior yeah. agent. He's probably well into his 80s by now. I think he was also an advisory producer on Narcos Mexico. I'll check that. Okay. But yeah, like- I, I'm not sure. But the other part of it, the CIA operative, if he was operating and working with a cartel at that point in time and involved in t- torture, I wouldn't bet any money on that because I have no clue. Could right. it happen? Absolutely. So- could, it, could it have not happened and it's all put together in in some sort of yeah, Hollywood yeah, form. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I'm just kind of stick up for the one agent. Okay. I highly doubt. That's, that's fair. I is highly that, doubt. And just one quick follow-up there. Is that because, is that a bias towards the fact that you worked with a lot of great people at the DEA and you're making that assumption? Or is it because you think that it's completely, it wouldn't have been possible for him to pull that off? Or I think I think we have enough assets out there that we would have been able to figure out if he was corrupt before, during, or after that, number one. Number two is, yes, I have worked with a lot of great people. And and the idea of taking money and corruption versus having a colleague that you work for and responsible right. for, brutally tortured um, and executed. I don't know if you know, when, when they kidnapped Kiki Camarena and beat the crap out of him and ultimately killed him that way, they didn't kill him by traditional means. They tortured him for days. There was a doctor that injected him with drugs that kept him awake so he wouldn't pass out. His last words were, I need a doctor, number one. Number two is, remember I told you about that supervisor that was working undercover, the guy named Joe in Detroit, and I took over for him on the undercover deal? He was transferred to go work on that operation, which was called Operation Leyenda. He was friends with Kiki Camarena. Mm-hmm. And he was a fluent Spanish speaker, and they transferred Joe over there uh, down towards the Guadalajara area to to work on that investigation. But that's why I believe that. Hey, are there corrupt agents? Absolutely. Very yeah. few. And we love arresting them. We love them. I have been involved in investigations where uh, we've had intelligence analysts arrested for corruption. 
or stupidity because mm-hmm. sometimes there's a fine line between the two. You can provide information to the enemy out of stupidity versus uh, being actually corrupt. But I've worked on having uh, DEA agents arrested, DEA intelligence analysts arrested. And um, and as I told you earlier, Scarface, I've arrested a corrupt cop, an FBI top 10 fugitive. Right. But there was another agent, and I don't mind saying his name. His name was Rene Delacova. Rene Delacova worked with us in Colombia. He got promoted. He went to Panama. Mm. And or no, he was in Panama. I take that back. He was in Panama. He you could see his picture. He's the one that was marching Manuel Noriega onto an airplane when he was arrested. Okay? <laughs> so Rene gets uh, Rene Delacova gets all sorts of acclaims. He was a very nice guy, friendly, jovial, you name it. Well, he ends up getting promoted. He goes to Florida. That guy behind you? Right there? Well, that. Yeah, yeah, that's Rene Delacova. Okay, absolutely. I'll put, that's that, I'll put that picture in the corner of the okay. screen. Okay, so it says remembering him. Who wrote that article? I highly doubt it was Rene, because I'm going to tell you a story. So that's Rene. Let me, let me do this real quick, just to confirm. Okay. I'm going to put my glasses on, <laughs> step away from the camera. <laughs> that's definitely Rene Delacova. Okay. So Rene was a very likable guy. He was a friend of mine. He was a friend of all the agents in Bogota. That's where he worked. That was after Noriega. Yeah. And he gets promoted. He goes to Florida, right? And very rarely do supervisors work undercover. Almost never now, and the reason being because of him. (laughs) What happened was they were doing money laundering pickups, right? And they Mm. picked up millions. He was the undercover agent on the group. And the reason supervisors can't be undercover agents is because when you think about it, let me move a little closer here. When you think about it, there's no supervision going on. Nothing. People can run amok. So what happens is he's picking up money, suitcases full of money for money launders. So he goes and picks up a half a million or a million dollars here, and he takes it back. He's being followed just like all the protocols, everything, right, that I talked about. Mm-hmm. All that money gets logged and placed and ultimately drop off at the reserve after it's been photographed and tested for drugs, all that stuff. He does that several times in, in a money laundering operation. Huge deal, right? Well, ultimately, they took the guy down. And the case agents are interviewing the guy. And they say, okay. And the supervisor's not there in the interviews. Mm. And he basically says, okay, well, we've got you. You delivered seven suitcases. And I'm making up the numbers. It could have been six, could have been nine or whatever, totaling this amount of millions of dollars to our guy and the guy sat back and he said no no i i gave him 12 or 11 whatever something like that so what happened was renee went and made pickups on his own with no backup nobody knew he he got the page because he's the undercover agent he gets the page saying i got another half a million or a million or whatever ultimately these agents knew something was wrong, make a long story short, internal affairs, what we call the Office of Professional Responsibility, OPR, part of our internal investigating our own, get wind of it. They do execute several search warrants on his house, safety deposit boxes, you name it. Bottom line is Renee was stealing money Mm. from drug dealers and technically from the government, and he made millions. 
Well, he paid the ultimate price when it comes to apart from death, and that's freedom. Well, he was sentenced to prison. I don't know the amount of time that he got, but uh, there's more to that story. People can research it on their own. There yeah. could have been an accomplice that he was involved with, all that stuff. But the bottom line is the guy that helped take down Manuel Noriega ended up stealing money from the government, corrupt agent. We're really glad that the agents that were on top of the investigation, honest agents, got word to the people that had to get the word to. Rene Delacova was a corrupt agent, and he went to prison for it. Do you think when you look at, it could be corrupt DA agents, FBI, name, name and whatever it is, some of them obviously just were bad eggs who got through and maybe were always bad people. But do you think sometimes it's guys who learn to rationalize to themselves and get to a point where they they're they're capable of doing that because they feel mm-hmm. like they're working on this, you know, hundred thousand and five dollar and twenty two cent government salary and yet they're out here arresting people like Manuel Noriega right. and they and, feel and like they should get some I, for their time. I hear where you're coming from on that. And and I will say this. I think that kind of philosophy that brews in someone's head is more at the state and local level mm. where there's less constraints which also mean, hey, you know, who's going to notice? Right. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But remember, to become a DEA agent, the background investigation process and everything else that goes on and the drug testing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and everything that you're involved with, it's, I'd like to say, DEA selects the cream of the crop. And when you get the cream of the crop, every now and then a bad egg is going to slip through. Right. But we go through so much background investigation, so much interviewing, so much this, so much that. And there's so many rules and regulations that try and keep something like that, as I point back to the screen, from happening with Rene Delacova. Yeah, that's a closer up picture, by the way, right there. So there you go. Definitely Rene. <laughs> and I mean, we hung out in Bogota together, et cetera, et cetera. And he was still friends with guys in Bogota when they when he got arrested. And some of them were like, hey, let's let the justice system take apart. I said, I'm looking at the one guy. I said, Javier, not Pena, not different Pena, one. a different agent. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> they executed search warrants on how many safety deposit boxes do you have? He goes, I don't have one. I said, well, imagine having seven. <laughs> Why do you need seven safety deposit boxes? It could have been eight, could have been nine or whatever. But my, my point is a whole bunch. But no, I don't think, the, for the most part, DEA agents rationalize that. Every When you have a top secret clearance, every five years you go through another background investigation. Mm. And so during that time, they're looking at your tax returns. They're checking your financials. Did you get in above your means? Did you go through a divorce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Do you have unexplained income? You know, And it doesn't mean that you couldn't have had your grandmother die and she willed you her house and all right. of a sudden you have $200,000 in your account. Though. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So- the important thing is that there's checks and balances, number one, that prevent corruption. But more importantly than preventing corruption at the end of the game, it's at the beginning of the game, finding the right people. And remember, with all the protocols, and I've talked about this on my TikTok page about corruption, can you imagine two DE agents sitting in a car? Hey, we just got $100,000 in a brown paper bag that we took out of that crack house up there in um, Hoboken, New Jersey. And, uh, hey, you want to split it? 
And one agent looking at the other saying, yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't you take half? I'll take the other half. That isn't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Why is that not going to happen? Because the minute this one agent says that to the other agent, this other agent's thinking one of several things. A, I'm being tested. B, <laughs> he's internal affairs. C, I'm an honest guy. Why would a fuck would he ever ask me that see i enjoy my career i enjoy making my salary Prisoner dilemma I, enjoy, kind of thing. I, I enjoy yeah. all of this stuff yeah what am i gonna do i'm gonna turn them in immediately i'm gonna turn them in my point is an agent's not gonna talk to another agent like that you're gonna have for a term that's used periodically in the worldwide world of active shooters you're gonna have the lone wolf agent Right. The one that decides I'm going to be corrupt and I'm not going to tell anybody. Not that, not that it was the example I'm about to give. Not that it was two DEA agents. It was a DEA agent and a Secret Service agent, nonetheless, two people on team government. But to maybe make your point for you, when you look at that fucking mess of a case, the, 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 no, the Silk Road case, there was there were two rogue agents on there who ended up doing about six years apiece in prison. One was DEA, one was Secret Service. And they were both ripping off at one point on the same crime scene and didn't know it because they weren't talking to each other about it. So when they both went down, like neither knew that the other was doing anything and they were operating alone. So they didn't – it's not like there was a discussion like, ooh, let's go, let's go make well, some that, money the day of Well, that day the arresting agent should have bought the Powerball ticket because the odds of that happening are, are pretty slim. Can it happen? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, But Renee – and the agent that you just described uh, with the Secret Service. And there are, other, there are other things that happen with agents. Agents that make the news normally make it out of stupidity, mm-hmm. meaning it's not corruption. It's doing like the crap that happened in Cartagena before the president visited Columbia and, and, and a couple of agents with prostitutes or something like that. What, what happened? When was that? It's, uh, that was in the last five or six years. It wasn't in the last five years. It was probably in the last seven years. Keep that uh, Google, Google, Google it really quick. You got that fancy computer there. And basically what it is is they uh, just go DEA and Cartagena prostitute. Boom, it's going to pop up on your screen. They did stupid stuff, and they they deserve to lose their job. DEA blamed for handling of agent sex parties with hookers. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that sounds like something you'd see, you know, like undercover. And it's run by the DEA. I'm sure they drug test at the door, right? Everyone's clean. Yeah, who knows what exactly <laughs> happened there that day, that weekend. I don't know. Those agents, A, would have been kicked out of Columbia immediately, B, demoted, C, mm. probably fired, probably right. fired. Uh, depends on how much further did they commit a felony? They commit misdemeanors. Uh, what their track record was? I know if I would have had the chance. I know if Joe Toff was in charge uh, of Columbia at that time, they would have been fired. Yeah, it's um, a liability immediately, for sure. immediately. For sure. But that happened. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, sometimes when DEA agents make the news, they make it out of stupidity. They do something stupid. How about the retired DEA agent in Florida? That got mad at a guy on a traffic at a traffic light thing and shot the guy in the chest. Killed him. I didn't hear about that Did one. he kill him? I don't know if he killed him or not. Google, Florida, DEA, road rage. My road point rage. is the guy was retired, a retired agent. I don't know if the case has had its um, ultimate... ultimate uh, was this conclusion. 2022? Yeah, it was in the last year. Florida road rage shooting leaves two daughters shot? Uh No. Did you put DEA in there? Yeah, I did. It was trying to make me put dad. DEA agent uh, shooting. 
what is is road rage a crime in Florida? Hold on. Florida DA agent shooting car. Former Florida DA agent who claims self-defense. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Brad Sanowski. I think he was a firearms instructor. I've heard a lot of things about the guy. I don't know enough. So all I know is this. He pulled the trigger and... um, yeah, he, it says Brad uh, Sosnowski. So I, I can't. It's a little small. Sosnowski, 55, told Boynton Beach police he shot another driver in self-defense when the man approached his car from behind Monday. Sorry, I think just popped any, up. Any lie to the whole story. Okay. I think surveillance cameras picked up a different scene. He said he was approached or attacked by the driver. Lied. Bottom line, stupidity. Right. Stupidity. Right. And that's the way... A DEA agent or a former DEA agent makes the headlines, almost always. The chances of people like men... There was another corrupt agent out of uh, out of Florida that's been really big news lately. Well, out of Florida, man. Yeah, well... Interesting uh, country down there. Yeah, exactly. But uh, he, was, um, he was a Hispanic agent. I forget his name. Guys, we are posting mid-form clips from this podcast every single day on YouTube. We have been since January, and unfortunately, there's like three fucking subscribers over there. So the link is in the description as well as in the pinned comment. I'd really appreciate you guys subscribing because shout out to Alessi Aleman. He's been helping me out with this channel, and he's not going to do this for completely free forever, and the channel is literally not even monetized. A lot of people have been asking me for this channel for over a year. We finally got it. I would love to see you guys go over there and join. It'll be a huge help, so thank you in advance to everyone who's going to do that right now. But if you write DEA, corrupt agent, Florida, cartel, it should pop up. But he was way in. And I'm sure lots of supervisors are going to probably possibly lose their job because they didn't do a good job of supervising them. Did it pop up? Uh, There's a couple that we were looking at that popped up. But I I get the story. Is it it this one, Jose Irizarry? That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So my point is, he was a corrupt agent, Rene Delacova, for the most part. Corruption doesn't exist, and I and I would hate to leave this podcast saying that we spent a lot of time t- talking about corruption because the truth of the matter is, although corruption is big in movies, it's big on the screen, it's big in the movies, theaters, and books, and all that, it is so minute when it comes to federal agents. And I'm so proud of the fact that I was a federal agent, and I know any agent that I ever worked with. If they, I know they feel the same way, that if they had one ounce of thought that somebody was corrupt, they'd turn them in. That's how they do it. There is no, there is no blue line where we don't cross or we cover for one another. No, no. If you're I can't wait for the YouTube comments on this one. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm telling you, the people that see that, it just doesn't happen. When it comes to DE agents, we arrest our own. Or we encourage anybody to turn in a corrupt agent. And believe me, there are agents that have gotten divorced and their spouse, whether it be male or female, have called DEA and said, hey, he, I was oh, married no. to him for 12 years and he told me that he lied on his background, oh, that no. he had tried something or he did something. They go, We go back and investigate it. Oh. And agents can be fired 12 years later because an ex-spouse said that he lied on his background or she lied on her background investigation. My point is, (laughs) take it really, really seriously. Remember the part about my very first interview, I told the truth? About the weed. Exactly. 
And then I was able later on to explain that in my second interview a few years later. Now imagine had I lied and then years later, one of my high school buddies comes and says, oh, I see Ken McGee's on Pablo Escobar. He's done this. He's, he was on that. He's on the American Heroes channel. He's done this and done that. And while I was an agent, say, for example, or he was a spokesman for <laughs> DNA, D, DEA on uh, CNN. And they call up and say, you know what? I used to smoke weed with him all the time in high school. They'll investigate it. They, they will. For today for weed? Well, because I lied on my background okay. All right. investigation. Okay. You know, that's, I did not lie because <laughs> my point is, had somebody said, I'm just creating a scenario because I told the truth. Right. Um, and, and that's the way it is. So, but so, what, what about, the, uh, I mean, we're kind of like all over the place on this topic discussing the corruption sure, angle of it, but sure. we started this this silo with the Kiki Camarena thing, which the implication was like the CIA. And I do want to say this before I bring this up. You had mentioned this earlier about people who were like, abolish three-letter agencies and stuff like that. I agree with you. I think that's crazy. And I also think that, you know, people want a boogeyman to blame for everything and they can't see the nuance of like, hey, there's some bad people sometimes that do bad things at these places. I'm going to call it out every time. I'm not then just going to label the entire system as completely there are wrong. corrupt doctors, corrupt right. judges, corrupt right. life insurance salesmen, corrupt grocers that will manipulate your machines so you're paying more for fruit. Yes. Whatever. Yes. It's everywhere in every profession. And do I hold people in like government or even at like a high profession like doctors or something to maybe a higher standard, yes, and you and, should, and that's and that's completely fair, and I, I won't apologize for that. But you know, I also recognize that some things that you may want to look at and immediately label like murder or corruption or whatever, maybe like a Kiki Camarena situation. I don't know. You know, th there's a lot of stuff that we don't know because it involves intelligence and it involves things where there's trade-offs for things around the world. You know, and and there are some really really difficult moral quandaries that have to be accepted in a job like yours or in a job in the cia or fbi where you as much as you want to if you're a good person want to fight for the badge of freedom and justice at a hundred percent rate sometimes you got to trade off that 25 percent because 75 percent is a bigger number and that 25 percent is a real hard pill to swallow so when i look at the the drug wars we'll call it mm -hmm. in in emanating out of out of south america and and mexico and everything you know people of reporters have talked about the involvement of various agencies but maybe on the other side of the deals or things like that cia is the one that comes up a lot to start though in your experience in the late 80s and 90s how much did you see let's call it agency interference that wasn't necessarily in your security clearance pay grade where you may not have understood why, for example, this CIA guy or whatever is here and doing things that seem to be counterintuitive to what you need, but they're there and you just have to accept that. Sure, sure. Well, let me, for your listeners as well, a lot of people say he was a CIA agent and he's a DEA agent. A CIA agent and a DEA agent are complete opposites. And what do I mean by that? Mm. A CIA agent is the equivalent of a DEA informant. CIA guys are called case officers. There's no such thing as a D CIA agent. 
You follow me? I follow they're, you. Yeah. They're called case officers. So when somebody says that this guy was a CIA agent, maybe he wasn't a CIA agent. Maybe he was a C, or maybe he wasn't a CIA case officer actually on the payroll getting us life insurance and medical insurance and getting a check every two weeks from Uncle Sam. Right. Okay. He could have been a CIA operative slash agent, which once again is like an informant. Right. So meaning someone who could be from Columbia, for example, who works, reports to a case officer. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. That's asset. number one. So just so when you're when you're having a conversation, when somebody throws out the term, he's a CIA agent. Well, that's that's the movies. I understand what you yeah, say. It could that, be, you want to be clear that yeah. it could mean a couple different things. We got to be careful. Well, it it there are no CIA agents that are government technical authority or I mean, officials because they're called case officers. So the people I'm talking about, just to be clear, are the case officers. I understand okay. everywhere we got, got assets I got on it. the ground. I got it. I get. That. Okay, that's number one. Yeah. Number two is I can't speak for the CIA. I never personally had involvement where I got shut down because of something I didn't understand. But I will tell you this, when it comes to DEA, and there's a lot of different creative ways to catch bad guys, you know, whether surveillance techniques, whatever the case may be, and a lot of different ways that sometimes are border illegal. So we go through steps to mm. say what's legal, what's not legal. And we are always shut down if it becomes something that's illegal. For example, I want to do a wiretap on so-and-so's house in Dearborn, Michigan. Well, I just can't contact the wiretapping group and say, go set up on that guy's phone. I have to get a serious long affidavit together that's approved by a judge. And then ultimately we get it. We get the search or I'm sorry, we get the, we get what's called the title three wiretap yeah. intercept, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. However, if I found out that that guy was playing a terrorist act, there's something that can be obtained immediately under the FISA laws and courts where, uh, uh, a foreign uh, FISA, foreign intelligence, foreign investigative sensitive activity, whatever the case may be, the FISA um, allows you to get the FISA allows you to go up on that guy's phone and then file the paperwork and explain why you went so fast. Mm. And that's not on drug deals; that's on acts of terrorism. Right. You follow me? Yes. But um, for example, when we go undercover and for we do not do drugs. We don't experiment with drugs. Or you're taught a multitude of ways to get out of having to do drugs. Because for us to do drugs, we compromise our position, compromise our health, compromise our safety. We we you know could OD because you don't know what it's like to take drugs. But also, technically, it's illegal. All those things. But what we do every now and then is we release drugs to the community. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by release yeah, drugs? Yeah, what do you mean by that? I knew I'd get your attention and every one of your attention <laughs> out there. And what do I mean by that is you want to deal with a guy. It's called a reverse operation. Okay. You know a guy wants to buy 100 kilograms of cocaine, right? And you got to prove to him you're a drug dealer and that you have 99% pure cocaine. So you give them a sample. Mm. And the sample is basically the size right. of a sweet and low package. Right. Okay. Right. But you just don't get to do that. Okay. Mark my words. Let me take you down the road real quick. Please. You want to get approval to release a controlled substance in the street to convince this guy that you're a high level drug dealer. Right. First off, you're the case agent. 
a GS-13 pay grade. You got to get approval from your supervisor, who's then going to go to his supervisor, who's a 15, who then's going to go to the head of the office, who's technically the number 16, but it's called the SAC, special agent in charge. And then what does he do? He says, craft all the paperwork. We send it to Washington, D.C. We have a whole unit that reviews the paperwork as why it is better in the community to release this small amount of drugs for the betterment of the community. And then it goes all the way to the attorney general's office. For a packet of sweet and low. Exactly. Why? Because of perception that, that technically you've violated the law releasing cocaine to some guy into the street. So my point is the checks and balances. Now, real quick, Google that uh, ATF and that operation that they did where they were sending guns to Mexico. Um, I forget the um, the name of the operation. Fast and Furious, I think it was. Oh, yes. Yeah, o- yeah. It was Operation Fast and Furious or whatever. Um yeah, I'll pull it up right now. So Fast and Furious. I need the operation. No, not the fucking. Well, it's movie. not the Vin Diesel movie. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. But- ATF gun walking scandal. I'll read the quick thing. Was a tactic used by the Arizona U.S. Attorney's General Office. Oh, wait. No, this is not. Gun walking or, oh yeah, gun walking or letting guns walk was a tactic used by the Arizona U.S. Attorney General's Office and the Arizona Field Office of the United States Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which ran a series of sting operations between 2006 and 2011 in the Tucson and Phoenix area where the ATF, quote, purposely allowed licensed firearm dealers to sell weapons to illegal straw buyers hoping to track the guns to Mexican cartel leaders and arrest them, unquote. I see the thought process. Yes, I do too. I see yes. that's the equivalent of us releasing that small gram of cocaine. Right. However, then little Mary dies by one of the guns and, you know. Well, it's more than that because those guns ultimately made their way to cartel members. Right. It's not a consumable product. It's a it's a daily daily use product. It's a utility. It's, yeah, exactly. It can be used all the time. I understand why they did it i understand how they did it i understand how they got permissions however had i been on the receiving end of do we grant permission of this and that i wouldn't have been thinking about the moment i would have been thinking about the moment several years ago when all of this is exposed and thinking how many people died because of the guns that we provided Mm -hmm. because they go to cartel members they're whacking people left and right in mexico I don't know the numbers. I haven't studied the case. I had the general specifics of it. But whoever made the final decision on that and didn't think right, it they just they didn't think of the long-term repercussions. And I'm surprised it made it all the way up that far because when you think about it, you know, you're releasing guns to the cartel members. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? You know, that's like... What could possibly go wrong? I mean, it's a symbolism thing, though, more than anything. And what I mean by that is if I just wanted to look at this logically, you know they're getting their hands on guns anyway, right? Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So they're going to kill anyway. But the fact that a gun was serial number A10574, which could be traced back to the store that they allowed this to happen and happened to kill little innocent Mary over here because Sicario Jose got pissed off or whatever. Now it's a news story, right? Whereas if Sicario Jose just killed her with, you know, his fucking nine millimeter that he already had, now it's just another day, right? So I, I get it, but 
this is where I actually feel a little bad for the government sometimes when they're trying to do the right, right. thing there for was the bigger a, picture, but they, they can't. There wasn't corruption involved yeah. there. It was just, it was an operation that I don't know the overall results if the ends justified the means, but it definitely has uh, the perception of this was not well thought out in yeah. the long run. Yeah. So real quick, um, the analogy that I gave to you about where that we release drugs in the community is a lot different than letting some Glock nine millimeter with an extended magazine, dozens and dozens or however many there were, get out. And because those are the same weapons that are being used against DE right. agents and other agents that are overseas and serving in some of those foreign foreign posts. We um, and then why again? Why would we have done what we did with the drugs? Because ultimately, we want the guy to say, "Yeah, I want to buy a hundred kilograms of cocaine." And here's $2.5 million. We're going to wire it to you. We're going to put it in this suitcase and deliver it to you and on some clandestine airstrip in, in the remote areas of Arizona or whatever the case may be. And um, we seized the $2.5 million in cash. And buying 100 kilograms of cocaine is the same as possessing 100 kilograms of cocaine. It's the same, in yeah. essence, the same kind of penalties. And so that's just one way that we operated to take another major drug dealer off the street. you know. And that's what happened with uh, John DeLorean. Do you know the DeLorean story? You know mm. the DeLorean car, right? Yeah, I know Back DeLorean to the future. Car. I don't know the DeLorean story. DeLorean created this organization where he built those beautiful cars that were made out of what? Stainless steel. And uh, he ultimately started this company. I believe it was in Ireland. And he was running low on cash. And on running his company. So he decided he'd get in the cocaine business. He met with some DE agents out of the Detroit office, as a matter of fact, to buy cocaine. They got him on video saying, oh, I can't wait to get this, and we're going to turn this into this kind of money. Is it on the screen behind me? It is. It's mind-boggling. So he went down for that. He went down for that. And I think ultimately they called it entrapment or something of that nature. But um, the undercover agent... Um, met with him, and they've got all sorts of films. This was a professional businessman that started a car company that was going to revolutionize the industry of automobiles, and he turns into like, a drug dealer? I feel like I've looked at this before, but I'm not sure. That's a wild story. That's a good podcast right there. Yeah. Whoever yeah, was I on mean, that case. Well, I can tell you, the guy who was on that case is no longer alive. I believe uh, oh, that's a shame. I asked about him to a friend of mine about six months ago, and uh, his first name was Jerry. And, um, and make a long story short, um, something happened where he left the agency many, he left the agency many years, many, many, many years ago before very shortly after I joined, but something happened, um, where there was a domestic and bottom line is he killed somebody and then killed himself. Ugh. Or somebody killed him and then killed themselves. One of the two. Um, make a long story short, it was tragic. But he was a he was a pretty neat guy, from my understanding too. He was like a sports trivia expert, and you know he had a radio talk show after he left DEA that was all sports trivia and all that. But anyway, he was the undercover agent that took down DeLorean. But my my point is that's how major operations are done. And and you take a look at that guy, DeLorean. I mean, John DeLorean was huge. 
Yeah. He, you know, he's he ran in the names of like Lee Iacocca, the head of Chrysler, um, and 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 the Fords and everybody else. Um, so that's one of the reasons you had that very inquisitive look, and all of you people out there in <laughs> in um, uh, social media land also were wondering, what do you mean they release drugs into the community? Yeah, that's now, right. Once you explain now it, you yeah. are going to yeah. have the folks that are sitting there are going to say the CIA released a bunch <laughs> of crack cocaine into the into the ghettos uh, in California and all that. I've heard all of that, and I'll tell you what, I haven't really studied it that much. Am I going to doubt it? I don't know because I didn't work for the CIA. Uh, but, you know, I worked with the CIA a lot. And uh, I'll tell a funny story really quickly. There was a CIA agent that was assigned to the American embassy in Bogota, Colombia during the Pablo Escobar days. Did remember- he look like the guy in Narcos? No. As a matter of fact, he he looked like my seventh grade science professor. <laughs> well, that's how they like him. The guy in – I had another guy in here, Jim Lawler, who was a legendary spy at the CIA in – anti-nuclear proliferation and mass uh, weapons of mass destruction for like 25 years it's interesting to talk with you because your expertise was in the field undercover with nuclear arms deals and things like that and it's like the whole reason we went to iraq was because they had wmd and that turned out to not be true that's exactly right people ask me about that sometime and it is it is true that saddam hussein had been working on nuclear weapons before then he had used chemical weapons against the kurds the kurds are an ethnic group yes. there in iraq killed thousands of them. In fact, one of his cousins was known as Chemical Ali. And Chemical Ali used... And it was hilarious because he's older now. He's I think he's like 70 years old or something. But the guy that they have in Narcos playing the CIA agent who they make look extra corrupt in there, it's him. Like it's like it's and I sent the picture to Jim. I'm like, Jim, this is like it's like they took you 25 years ago and right. this is you right. in the fucking movie. So I always wonder like what that guy looked like. So that's that's sad to hear. That's, that's well, it, it was after we took down Pablo Escobar. And yes, the CIA did help. And so did the Delta Force. And so did the Army. And so did the Mill Group. And so did uh, the Department of State. And so did the Columbia National Police. And so did the DAS, which is the Colombian equivalent of um like the FBI, it was called the Departamento Administrativo de Seguridad. Anyway, they're no longer an agency in Colombia. That's one three-letter agency. I guess one country got rid of the DAS. But um, but they, I worked with them every day on the fugitive team and met some incredible, courageous law enforcement mm. officers. The Colombian National Police, the honest guys that worked with us, courageous as can be. And the same with the DAS agents. One I keep on hearing this. I've heard this from yeah. a lot of people who were down there like you when you listen to different interviews and stuff. They highlight how that's a huge misconception that like, oh, they were all corrupt or something. They're no. like, so many of these people were incredible what they did. There are some that are corrupt. Yes, But yes, not the ones. But, we had right. vetted ones and we also had ones. My, my friend that helped me take down the FBI top 10 fugitive, Armando Garcia, he was a member of the DAS and he we located where Amanda was and obviously you need a foreign representation there to help make the arrest and then they turn him over to us and we get him out of the country in whatever way we we do we do it legally but he drew down on the guy Armando Garcia was a former cop mm. and after he got caught he said to the my friend Ricardo he said to Ricardo he goes hey look I've got an apartment over there in Cali and I've got this car, you can have the car, you can have that. Here, the key to the apartment, just let me know. My friend said, no, you're the corrupt cop, not me. Ooh. And that made the article in uh, CN, um, the Miami Times, I believe, because I, I, I advertised that. I, I advertised the fact that 
that an honest DOS officer, and that guy right now isn't now a naturalized American citizen, lives in the United States. Oh wow! Not the the the, the DOS officer, but what what took me down that road um, was this representative from the CIA. Yeah. Okay. Who was assigned to the American Embassy in Bogota? And let's face it, we work with a lot of people. And we don't to be know. clear, you said this was after Escobar was killed. Yeah. Well, he worked during, before, during, and after. Okay. He was so still he was there, there before. Got it. Okay. So we were handing out awards to people within the embassy, and I went to him. And I said to him, "I'm not going to say his name, but uh, let's just say I let's just say his name is uh, Michael Ducksworth." Michael Duckworth. I just made that name up, right? It's a good name. Strong. So Michael Duckworth. So I say, hey, Michael, look, can I talk to you? He says, yeah. I said, look, you and I both know that Michael Duckworth is not your name. As a matter of fact, I know your real name because one day you pulled out some papers and you had accidentally another driver's license that I caught a glimpse of it and I know where you're from. And I saw it and I know it. But I'm just wondering, we're going to give out these certificates of it, um, participation and award for the Pablo Escobar <laughs> things. And I just want you to know that I will do whatever you want because someday you're going to retire. Someday you're going to retire and people will know you worked for the CIA if you chose to say you could start your own private company. You could do whatever. And, and I want your certificate to have your name on it. And I will get you one, not present it. I will just give it to you. Quick he, question, quick qu- clarification. Yep. I want to make sure I'm not fucked up here. Yeah. Are you, are you insinuating that this guy was not identifying as CIA? He was no, identifying no, as like no. State Department or something? No, he or? was. No, you're right. And I should have clarified. He he identified as CIA. Working but you with knew it was a different name. Yeah. Yeah. We know he was CIA. He worked with the CIA. Got he didn't promote himself as CIA on the outside unless following their own protocols on dealing with operatives did. and things of that. Yeah, in, in, in the agency, yeah, right. it was, um, um, he, they wouldn't call them CIA. They would have different words. And whenever we referred to the CIA, we wouldn't say the CIA. We would say, we're going to go up to the fifth floor, you know, which is where they were at the time. Got it. <clears throat> okay. Thank and you he looks at me, Michael Duckworth, and he says... I said, there'll be a time you're going to want to talk to your parents and tell them how great a job you did in your career and all that. And he looks at me and he says to me with a straight face, he said, thank you very much for asking. And I would like you to, I would, I'm honored to be able to get the certificate. And the name I want on it is my God-given birth name, Michael Duckworth. Mm-hmm. I looked at him and I said, okay, dude. <laughs> That's what you get. And I knew that wasn't his name. Yeah. I knew his other name. Yeah. I knew it. But he didn't think I knew it until I told him because he made a small little mistake with a bunch of papers that he had once. And because at the end of the day, whether you have 10 or 15 different aliases, ultimately you are somebody. Yes. And uh, he made that one small little area where we were in his office and he was sorting through some papers. And, and, uh, and I don't believe that there are paychecks come in an undercover name you know so I'll bet, they, I'll bet they don't unless it's someone you know what i don't even want to say because that, that world sometimes there's certain things and even yeah. though i've had some guys in here from that where it's like 
they would never even talk about how some of that is done anyway. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of the CIA work is glamorized a lot by TV and things like that. They're basically an intelligence agency. Yeah. You know, they they from what I've been told, they don't carry guns in the United States unless there's a reason for it. Number one, number two is they don't carry guns overseas unless there's a reason for it. In a place like Colombia, there is a reason for it, but in different areas there isn't. But uh, some of it's glamorized, and they have a job to do, and I think they do that job very well. Have they made their mistakes like any other agency? Absolutely. Did I enjoy working with them? Absolutely. Did I enjoy going into their offices? Yes, it was kind of interesting. You know, They put me in one room, then they put me into another room, and then they turned on some electronic device after I got searched before I went into their office, and they, they understood the security protocols ad nauseum. So much because yeah. they never wanted anything. Um, um, they didn't want anything compromised, and they did a very good job at that. But uh, so w- we we got off on this topic. Of we we did. We went into work. the agency thing. I'm glad you're you're trying to bring it back though, because what we were what we were on before we went to that, and I'm yeah. sure that'll tie back in naturally. Was you had gotten switched to the Escobar desk call it right in 1991 and so now you're on it and that was a long conversation was, ago. Yeah, i mean yeah. we talked about corruption i told you we do it this, live here we talk about that we talk about this can you imagine if you had like three people with eight adhd in this room we'd 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 be talking about pablo escobar one minute and then uh well, we Gosh. almost have, like yeah. in a, in our own way, like we we have. But that's why I love podcasts like this because you had described to me in in the car about how some of your friends joke you're like the Forrest Gump of of the DEA, just because you found yourself in the most interesting places at the most interesting time, and and hearing about all your different experiences, many of which we haven't even brought up yet today. Yeah, you know, it's it's very it's it's very easy for a guy like me to then want to dig deeper on sure. like the perspectives you had on these things. Sure, and to get some clarification, my friends didn't say I was like Forrest Gump of DEA. I said <laughs> I was like the Forrest <laughs> I Gump you said of your friends. Though, no, I said I'm like the Forrest Gump of law enforcement. I don't think my friends would ever have called me the Forrest Gump unless of course I was doing a Forrest Gump. Gump for his gump. Well, this is my friend Ken McGee here. He's the DEA. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I could uh, see why you were good undercover. That's that's good. Well, well Ken, he's the he's <laughs> on TikTok. You can watch my friend, the DEA guy. So my point being is, yeah, I was like, all of a sudden, here I am. I'm in Detroit, falling into this undercover deal. I'm at the Olympics in in 1996. I'm next to the bomb when it blows up. I mean, all of a sudden, I find myself years before that in Colombia, assigned to the Pablo Escobar case. And in 91, uh, you're on the case. Yeah. And day one, after you've talked to John Toft and said, what the fuck? Why'd you put me here? Now you're here. What? Take me there. What, Joe what happened? Joe what was Toft. the... Joe Toff, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What was the, like, may, actually, maybe a better way to, to get there would be for the people out there who haven't seen all the different things on Pablo Escobar. Let's yeah. let's dig into him a little bit and what, when he started to get big, who he was in Colombia, and then we'll work our way to what your assignment in 91 was. Let's, let's uh, give a brief synopsis on Pablo Escobar. Um, Pablo was basically a criminal. Um, Basically. And, and he he grew up, got involved with little things, little scams, whether it be stolen cars, stolen motorcycles, any way that 
street criminals can start to make a buck. And ultimately, he got turned on to cocaine. He started uh, um, making his own cocaine in his own kitchen. And slowly but surely, he met some other drug dealers like Jose Gonzalo, got Rodriguez Gacha, and he ultimately built an empire. You know, let's put it this way. He's the Phil Knight of the drug world. Phil Knight was a guy making tennis shoes in a garage with another guy with a waffle iron, pouring rubber uh, into a waffle iron, creating kind of a, a, a tacky uh, base of the shoe, mm -hmm. and then ultimately becomes Nike. Yeah. And so Pablo Escobar was the Nike or, or the Phil Knight of the drug world. He started small, started to do this, started to do that. And then his empire just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. How young did he have so much power to where he just had everyone working for him, though? <clears throat> through money buys power and through fear buys power. Mm. So those that wouldn't work with him, a lot of politicians didn't like him. He wanted, not only did he want his money, he wanted popularity. He... Mm started a race car uh, group where him and his cousin would race cars and and he would finance these fancy cars to come in and they'd race Renaults. And they wanted to win the Columbia Cup or whatever it was called. And it, very interesting in Juan Pablo's book about his father, he talks all about the Renault car racing series. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating. He never won, but he wanted validation he wanted to be a champion he wanted to do this he wanted to do that and then he wanted more validation so he ran for political office they talk about the whole story in juan pablo's book too about him running for political office and ultimately how people wanted him out of office because of the concerns of him being a drug dealer so he worked his way up and through power and through violence i'm sorry for, through money and through violence he gained power and more power and more more power he was a very smart man he really was and he compartmentalized a lot of things but ultimately he created too many enemies and his son points out that he created the enemies more or less because he went into politics and once he went into politics, he started to get more enemies, and then he got forced out of politics, which caused Pablo to be angry. Pablo had a temper, and if you recall, when you hear the story about me following the family to Germany and getting the family kicked out of Germany was a catalyst for Pablo going down. Because he got so angry, he started making phone calls. He called the German embassy, threatened to blow it up. He called his son, and all those calls were being monitored because his son was placed in a hotel. And so the phone calls were being able to be triangula uh, tri triangulated. And it was his temper that mm. caused him to eventually go down. So... <clears throat> And so Pablo validated himself and he got so much money. He started building buildings and he started buying properties. And, and I am sure that there are some sort of assets out there that are just buried through time that belong, oh, to, sure. Pablo, that belong to Pablo Escobar. Sure. So um, he utilized family members and um, some of them betrayed him. After he died, they didn't take care of his family after he died. And um, he was a fascinating guy that, in reality, if he went to prison instead of was killed, he probably could have written a book or two not about 
drug dealing and all that, but how to build an empire. Keep in yeah. mind, Forbes magazine placed him as one of the richest men in the world. Well, he was. What, what was the, what was his estimated net worth at his peak? I don't know, give or take billions. billions. I mean, they go back. They go back and forth with statistical data, and I don't think he ever agreed with those numbers. From what I've heard, probably but, not. He's probably worth more. Yeah, but uh, and and so you take a look at. I mean, he could have written a book, like I said, about how to build an empire. Uh, you know, I gave this this analogy of Phil Knight and Nike, and and I'm not saying Phil Knight is a bad person or anything like that. He's done a phenomenal job building a, right, a international camp company, and yeah. um, and he's changed many lives, much for the better. Um, but uh, so that's Pablo in a nutshell, ruthless. He was absolutely ruthless, and he was more than willing to take a life to make a point, and almost take a. For the most minute issue, he would have somebody killed. And, and there are stories left and right and uh, of him having people killed and tortured or just, you know, snapping his fingers saying, take him out. Keep in mind, I mentioned earlier, he wanted to kill one person on an airplane. And it turned out the person wasn't even on the airplane. And they put a guy on the airplane with a boombox and the instructions to the guy in the airplane was, when you take off, you're going to get instructions on who you're supposed to be following and who you're going to kill when the, when the airplane arrives at the location. You're going to follow the guy off the plane or whatever. And they told this, they sold this kid a bill of goods. Guy gets on the airplane. He's got his boombox, goes mm. up to a certain height, presses the button that says play. Boom, the plane blows up. Ten minutes outside of Bogota, it's destroyed. Oh my Lives. God. Lives ruined. That happened in November of 89, um, right before Thanksgiving. I had only been in Colombia at that time for about 10 months. It was like... And this is the height of the of the crisis that he became at this point, right? In that time period, like 88, 89, 90. Exactly. And it created a lot more enemies. Yeah. A lot more enemies. I mean, you know, I try to look at people like this and have some understanding of how it gets there right and you and i were talking i'm not referring to what we were talking about earlier like well how does it shape you or whatever more so when people i i think i think i need a safe space right now just kidding what do you the, mean the safe space meaning how did it form you and all the violence and <laughs> we talk about people can i wasn't I, paying attention yeah, to how i was can, saying yeah. that sorry and can i uh I, I need a safe space right now. Well, you would time. know some about those I, working I, on college campuses. But, <laughs> yeah. When I think of space, safe space, I think of the Jodie Foster movie where she locked herself in a room and, and had a barricaded room. Where, Isn't that called or, Panic Room? Yeah, I think yeah. that's what it is, yeah. And that's what I think of as a safe space. But <laughs> safe space is something else in today's day and world. And it is. It's like, oh my gosh, you were offended. Oh, well, let's all go to our safe space and we'll feel good. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm sure there's a reason for a safe space in this day and age, but... Uh, Could be. I think the way they use is probably a little wrong. If, yeah, so, if, if we look at it, I agree yeah, with you. But so. if you if you getting to what I mean with him, though, is to get to a point where you're worth billions of dollars, you have unlimited power, you now have a family, you have more money than you could spend in a thousand lifetimes, and... You have a business where not even the government can stop you. 
his downfall came because it was never enough. Several governments. Even better, several governments. His downfall came because it was never enough. He didn't have a moment where he said, oh, shit, like we're rolling right here with with the business. I think I'll just keep it on on cruise control now. We'll just, you know, ship our cocaine to the U.S. Our government's not going to care about that. Not drop so many bodies. Our government does care about that. I'll pay off my politicians to make sure everything's kosher, and that's the end of it. But this guy had no capability of that. Or or how about this? Take your 100, 200, 300 million, half a million, or I have a billion, and invest it in a legitimate firm... And live off your seven or eight million dollars a year in interest. My yeah. point is, totally get out of the profession, which uh, which obviously he didn't do and couldn't do. Not what he did, and and I, I just, you know, I I don't understand how people that psychological like hamster wheel that happens where even when you get to that point, you you have to keep on putting you know, the money on, on black, you know what I mean? Like, right. and, and letting it ride and to let it ride when you're, as we said, a sociopath, like that means to then push away everyone who could even slightly be even blackmailed into supporting you by blowing up planes and stuff. Cause you want to kill one person or a presidential candidate. Yeah. And then ultimately yeah. killing a presidential candidate. He killed the, the attorney general you talking about. Well, I'm talking about um, Galan, who was like the Bobby Kennedy, right, right, uh, right? The Bobby Kennedy of the political world at that time. He had him executed um, on stage right before he was going to give a speech. And uh, I was in Columbia at that time too. It was wild. Every day it was something different in the news, you know. But how you get there, how you get to be a person like that, a lot of things have to fall in place. And I think history has learned that lesson. You know, you will never have a Nazi Germany again. You will never have a. You will. Ne- I don't. I don't think so. I don't, Still knocking on wood. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. yeah. Um, you'll never have a Pablo Escobar again. You'll never have certain other things happen again because we've learned and and we review and we revisit the scenarios that have occurred in our lifetime and we keep these tragedies on the front burner and always remember them so we never forget them so we never have them repeated and that's why I, I gave the Nazi Germany and. Um, um, have you been in YouTube comment sections about that? Uh, no, I, I haven't. And, and I, just, I know it's a comment section, but yeah. I, you might I, feel a little differently about that if you look and I don't, that's not, that's not a yeah. good thing. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised at, at people rewriting history and, and ways. Yeah. I mean, look, people, there are plenty of people who maybe they're just misinformed because this isn't a government type situation, but there are plenty of people who look at Pablo Escobar and think he was kind of cool. They don't look at the guy who was a pedophile. They don't look at the guy who was a killer of tens of th- hundreds of thousands of people. You could say I, I don't know what the exact date is. So someone look that up. You know they don't for the, for, for Escobar. Okay, like go who on. he killed, like gotcha. how many people he gotcha. killed. They don't look at a guy who you know shipped ungodly amounts of drugs, and it, even if it was cocaine, and it wasn't. I mean, I think he did ship other stuff too, so that's not even relevant. Like, point is, he's he he broke every international law and punished anyone around him just because they looked at him in a way that he wasn't sure he liked. You know, and there are people who will, in a way, even if it's like kind of as a pop culture joke, if you get what I mean, they'll still kind of glorify it. This was 30 years ago, you know? I like looking at these pictures that you have here. I don't know if you have the one down there, that white booklet. 
but you know, you, you got these you got these HD pictures where you know I'm I'm seeing the crime scene of when this guy died, and I'm like, you know, damn, that looks like it could have been yesterday, and yet it feels like people. Well, there you go. And this one, I'll probably have to bleep out on camera so we don't get demonetized. But I'll put that's these, why I turn it the other. I'll way I'll put these pictures on if it's bleeped out right now on camera. I'll put these pictures on my Patreon, which you can get Julian Dory on Patreon. Because uh, you have all kinds of amazing things here, but I look at this and, yeah, I mean, it looks like it could have been two days ago, based on the quality of the photograph, and yet, you know, it's so long ago, and and people will will forget all the bad things, this all the beyond drugs bad things this guy did. Right, and and you had talked about, uh, you know, there are people that, you know, on the comment section and things like that. I, I. Uh, I I find the comic comment section sometimes um, entertaining, <laughs> sometimes frustrating, is. yeah, and sometimes insulting, and sometimes insightful. Mm. And so the range of emotions, um, and I will always listen to somebody, and that's part of the compassionate part of me. I will always listen to somebody's opinion and see what they have to say. But you know, some of them are wearing the tinfoil hats, and yes. some of them do need to increase your medication or get on medication. And some of them are extremely intelligent and give some very well thought out points. You know, the, the interesting thing that on those comment sections, by the way, on my TikTok page there, every now and then you read one and it's just three words. Fuck the DEA. (laughs) Plenty of that. Yeah. Plenty of that. And, uh, what do I write under that? I, some of them, I can't help from responding. I just write anger issues. You know, or <laughs> or I say something like, uh, must have had a bad experience. Ooh. You know, whatever. You know, because a lot of people's opinions of DEA are formed by the media, by Hollywood, by a little of this, a little bit of that. And the same thing with Pablo Escobar. Yeah. A lot of the opinions formed on him was he was this Robin Hood or whatever the case may be. But I, I just don't think the world will ever be able to see a criminal as big as Pablo Escobar again. And when it comes to political criminals, it's getting far and few between that the 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 way the world operates now with the United Nations, with NATO and and different governments overseeing parts of the world that maybe we shouldn't be in. Mm. But I just don't see it happening like it did in the 40s in, in Nazi Germany, just like I don't see somebody becoming the level of Pablo Escobar. Will there be huge drug dealers? Absolutely. Will there be very... Bad political leaders that yeah, that 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 sure. do that 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 have people executed. To Look around the run, world, we have wonder a few. regimes. Exactly. Yeah. We you know, like I said, Idi Amin not only would kill his his adversaries or his opponents, he would eat them. <laughs> so my point, he would. You know, that's well documented. Punch uh, on that fancy machine you got over there. Idi Amin's favorite meal. I don't know what it was. I don't think but, I knew that. But yeah, he he would he would sometimes have uh, have his opponents, the people that he'd killed, he would um, feast on them, so to speak. Um, what a sick just, fuck! Uh, no, a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. Wow. Um, that should be in the handfuls of conversations, such as. Adolf Hitler and yeah. some of the other individuals, just a mm. horrible person. But 
but then again, around the world, there are those people. But I would like to say that, and also because of the form of social media and the news and multinational, keep in mind, there was no overnight news. CNN was relatively pretty new in the 90s. Okay. Now we have a shooting on a school campus. Everybody in the world knows about it within 12 minutes. There's no waiting for the papers the next morning. It's around the clock, 24-hour news. My point is, when in the criminal world, if somebody gets too big, things are investigated very rapidly, very rapidly. Uh, whether it be, you know, there's um, um, there's a serial killer. It's out there like that. People, now you've got thousands of armchair sleuths saying, oh, I know who that is, or I'm going to solve that crime, or I'm going to find that fugitive or whatever, because they're all working off the internet and they're armchair sleuths, meaning online detectives, so, so to speak. And every now and then they hit a home run. Every now and then they find the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's factory and they help solve a crime. Outstanding. I got no problems with any of that. But it's the same thing about advertising criminals and criminal behavior, number one, people are learning more and more about it rapidly. Number two is on the international circuit and some of the political atrocities that we've spoke about, things happen very quickly. We've learned about what's happening in Ukraine with the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. We hear about that instantaneously. Certain things are just not going to get as big, whether it be the criminal element or some of the other uh, elements. But it's money too. It's money and interest too. I mean, you don't hear about what's happening in Yemen every day. I don't talk about that on the news. You know, you don't you don't hear about what's going on in in, in and parts why of don't China. you hear about it as much? Because because there's money and influence. Involved. There's money and influence, and what else? They control media. They control the people. They control everything, so the information can't get out about sure. some of the atrocities Absolutely. happening there. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. but slowly but surely, it does get out. Because why? Because you just said it. So what about they're not talking about the atrocities in Yemen? How do you know about it? Because everything's controlled over there. Well, you know about it because some of it leaks out. Well, it's math, though, too. It leaks out, and a subset of people in the population will find out about it because they're looking. But the average person who may you know, just be going about their life, they don't work in podcasting or something, where part of their job is to try to know things that are going on. God knows I fall short at that, like right. even I do. <laughs> right. So like, you look at the average person. I mean, they got a family. They got kids. They got things to do, places to be. Like, How the fuck are they going to know what's going you're gonna, on in Yemen? You're going to do your next podcast on the theory and invent- invention and the continuing use of safe spaces across the world. (laughs) (laughs) So people can have their safe space because somebody didn't like their Barney t-shirt or whatever that they were wearing. But all kidding aside, back to what you're talking about, we were talking about Pablo Escobar. Yes. And ruthless man, glorified by some, vilified by others. Yes. He is one of the most despicable human beings that ever walked the planet but when he was a father, he was an outstanding dad, did what he could, made, tried to make it to every birthday party of his kids, hugged his kids, talked to his kids, gave them lessons about life, things of that nature, kind of kept his, didn't get inebriated in front of him, didn't, didn't do a lot of things. He, he tried to be a good role model as a father, even though we know you flew me here from Detroit into Philadelphia to speak on your podcast about how evil this person was. How do you... But he was a good father, it sounds like. And you guys, so maybe going to like 91 when you... Even though he put his kids' lives in jeopardy, because there will also be some people, how could you call him a good father when he did all that stuff? Catch my drift here. No, I understand what you mean. Catch my drift. When you're working on his case in 91, 
you know, you guys have insane intelligence on him as far as things that are known about bad he does and, and all these different things. But like, did did you guys also know that and know that, you know, this guy's a little bit of a different guy around a few select people in this world who he happens to actually care about? We just knew that he was very loyal and loved his family. Loyal to the extent of what an international multi-billionaire drug trafficking um, murderer he was, we knew that he had special loyalties to his family members uh, without all the extracurricular activities where he would cheat on his wife or whatever the case yeah, may be, yeah. which which obviously I'm not condoning. That was part of the culture. Yes. You know, here he is. He's he's running around doing what he's doing with his millions of dollars. and and uh, But he wouldn't let his kids see that. But what, what, like, why don't people talk about? Why don't you hear as much about like the pedophile angle and stuff like that with him? Because I mean, his I believe he married his wife when she was thirteen. He, I think he she got, was. I think he, she was fifteen. He got her pregnant allegedly when she was twelve, and she had an abortion. I mean, this was like a thing he did, and we know how much, righteously so, that type of thing is vilified in society. Right. Like, why is, I mean, how much did you guys even know about that back then? I assume you knew the age of his wife and things, but like, you know, was that a part of the calculation here? Like, this guy is also like a literal sexual deviant? Right. Well, cultivating informants always also dealt with periodically finding women that could get into an organization as well and do whatever they had to do to get further deeper in and deeper in. And uh, many of them had a track record of being involved in that that mater- that type of thing. And we're not going to change their lifestyle, but we can say, hey, if you're going to do this, if you have information, please let us know. But back to the abortion when she was like 12 years old, I don't know if that's ever been documented, and here's why I say that. Who knows that for a fact? Three people. Pablo, Tata, which is his wife, Victoria, Tata mm-hmm. was her nickname, and whatever doctor it was. My point is, did that happen? Could have happened, could not have happened, but do I know that he was involved with underage women and all that? Absolutely. And um, and like any, like any of those guys that were at that time running the gamut to being major drug dealers or whatever, they had their, they would have people just go out and find these people and bring them to them, you know, and that's, that's how it worked. Um, it's like the, uh, what's the guy's name? Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. yeah. I mean, guy had so much money that he cultivated a relationship with a woman that would bring a staple of, of stable of all these Poor underage girls who had no idea what they were getting into. And it's the same thing with Pablo Escobar. Yeah. The same thing. Through money buys power, invincibility, and whoever would challenge him was executed in one way, shape, or form or another. Yeah. You know, um, um, they talk about stories where Pablo got caught with he 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 didn't do much time in the jail before the la- the final prison that he went into. He didn't do much time before. And um I think he got caught once with a kilogram of cocaine. He got locked up for a little while. Ultimately, just a little while, because ultimately there's bribes, there's payoffs, and there's assassinations. So um, what's the old saying? Um, Plomo or pluma? No, wait. Um, No, ploma or plata. And uh, which means... Bullets or... or, or Silver. Silver or lead or silver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And... um, 
Um, I accidentally used the Spanish word, I believe, for feather when I corrected myself. <laughs> but uh, plata is money or silver they're referring to, and plumo is um, lead. So which one are you going to select? Your choice, sir. You work with me, you get plata. You work the other way, you're going to get some lead. Right. And when did he, I, I guess it, at what point, was it like the mid-80s where the Medellin cartel was viewed as the biggest cartel mm-hmm. in Colombia and the biggest one in the world? So I guess he built that throughout the late 70s into the early 80s through various underworld connections in other countries. And then he, because Colombia had a special ability to produce high-quality cocaine at high volume, then he was the vacuum that filled that void? Yeah, it was through the 80s that he amassed his fortune. It was also through the 80s near the end that he started to have his downfall. So there was a mm-hmm. 10, 12-year period where he was flying high. Um, and it was earlier when he was racing the cars and doing those things and running for political offices and eventually getting kicked out of political office, voted down by his people. But um, when you talk about that that vacuum, it was the perfect scenario for him. He could, um, they could get cocoa paste and, and materials from one country. There was remote regions, and and it was the perfect storm of different types of people, like Carlos Later, who uh, ultimately was arrested and is still doing time in a prison in Miami. He was part of the, or in the United States, I believe he's in Colorado right now. In yeah, Mexico. yeah, he was in the movie yeah. Blow. He, yeah, he, he Carlos was, Later. He yeah. handled all the transportation. The Ochoas did some other stuff. Pablo did other things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There were a handful of members of the original Medellin cartel, okay? And they grew faster and bigger than the Cali cartel. But let's briefly talk about the Cali cartel Please. because yeah. I was down there at that time as well. And I showed you the certificate. There was a team of agents. I ended up getting transferred from the Medellin group to the Cali cartel group because we quickly, once Pablo went down, we quickly shift focus now focusing on the Medellin cartel or Cali cartel. Mm -hmm. Guys were already working it, but now that became the priority. Okay. And, uh, and so, um, Jerry and Chris and Dave were agents that were the street agents that really worked hard on the. Kali cartel investigation. I was the backup supervisor in that group reporting to a guy named Ruben who passed away recently. But Dave and Jerry and Chris did a great job on the Kali cartel, but we're all part of that team. It's that small team. I've been transferred from one group to another now to work on this investigation. I learned my lesson from the first time. I got mm. transferred to the group. Remember, I said I didn't understand it. Yeah. I understand it clear now. I was assigned to that group because I was a senior agent. I could be an assistant to the supervisor, backup supervisor, and work with these agents that had all less time than I did in Columbia, mm-hmm. all of them, to include my boss at the time in that group, a guy named Ruben. Um, so, but keep in mind, Medellin was a primary cartel. Kali was a secondary cartel, right? It was Kali, viewed that way. What's right? that? It was, it was viewed, viewed that, that way, way, and it was that way. By but, the end, was it that way, though? Like, by the early 90s, well, that's wasn't what I, Cali as big? That's what I'm saying. Okay. Not by, by the, did you say early 90s? Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Because at that point in time, for a few years, Pablo was being persecuted. He was being chased. He was running. He didn't have as much time to dedicate towards drug dealing. There's <clears> masses <throat> of money everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. He's hiding. He's doing things. Cali cartel um, was the, uh, was the, gentlemanly like 
cartel. More business-oriented. More business-oriented, yeah. less violent, understanding that violence, violence is what brings the focus and the eye of authorities on you. However, did they have their times where they had to kill people, and they did, and all that, but they certainly weren't placing bombs in commercial districts to make a statement to the government saying, right. if you continue to try and extradite me, I'm going to set off bombs in every different areas. On a Every Sunday night, we'd have a barbecue at an agent's house. He lived up on a hill, and you could oversee the city. And he called his place Studebaker's. It was this sudden. That was the code name we met. We had when we were going to an agent by the name of Gary. His house. It was Studebaker's, and he had a, an apartment that had a big patio that overlooked. Getting housing in Bogota was also a huge deal because we had to have two ways in and out. We had to be on the fourth or fifth floor or above. We had to have special coating placed on the glass of our places. We had to have all sorts of security checks done on wherever we were going to live. We didn't live in a compound. We lived in individual houses. So Studebaker's, Gary's house, was up on a hill. And every Sunday night, we would go out there and then we'd have a barbecue. And uh, every now and then, you'd hear, kaboom! And you would just look out because the sound traveled first, and you'd look out on the horizon of the city, and you'd see smoke elevating, okay? Mm. And that was a time, there was a time where Pablo just didn't want to kill people, innocent people. He just wanted to cause massive chaos. So he would blow up explosions five, six, seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night in financial districts or areas where bus businesses were. And that wouldn't kill people? No, but they were closed. Okay. So less people would die. <laughs> Okay. How nice of them. Yeah, exactly. And so, but the Kali cartel ran things differently. So let me tell you briefly more about the Kali cartel. The, one of the reasons Pablo Escobar went down is because of the Kali cartel. Because here's what happens. The government starts pursuing Pablo. DEA starts persecuting and, and, and pursuing Pablo, Right. And then the Kali cartel says, remember some of those reasons we want to become informants? I said that you learn in the academy, A, B, C, D, one of them is to ruin and get, eliminate the competition. On a much macro level, the Kali cartel was doing that with Pablo Escobar. They knew that he was on the run. They wanted him out. Pablo never wanted to coordinate with the Kali cartel. One of the reasons his wife Tata wasn't killed when later on after Pablo died, his wife, Victoria, met with Kali cartel members and said, the only reason we haven't killed you is because we have heard on tapes and intercepts that we have of you talking on the phone with your husband about why don't you make peace with the boys from Kali, the men from Kali, make peace with them. So we know that you weren't trying to harm us. You were trying to mm. become gentlemanly like. But then they said, but we're still going to kill your son because we don't want him to grow up to be like Pablo Escobar. But through the whole stories of negotiation and things of that nature, uh, Pablo's son was allowed to live by the Cali cartel. So back to the Cali cartel. So they slowly but surely, they, they were becoming the number one cartel. And what were the name of the brothers? Orajuela. Orajuela, yeah. So there were two brothers who ran it, and then they had Pacho Herrera was another main guy and who was the the other dude the hell was his name there's another key figure there. oh well you touched on the main ones you touched on the main ones but real quick this is the cert certificate for being on the team that took down the Cali cartel 
And this was at near the end. But real quick, before I I tell you, it you can see it occurred. Just keep the mic. You you can see it occurred June uh, on June sixth, nineteen ninety five. Gilberto Rodriguez Orjuela as well as on August 6th, Miguel Rodriguez Orjuela were apprehended by the Colombian National Police in Cali Cartel, or in Cali, Cali, Colombia. That was a joint effort by the DEA and the Colombian National Police. And I already mentioned the names of the agents that were extremely involved in that. And I was honored to be the backup supervisor in this group as well, because the supervisor had a lot to do with getting money approved. And like, we, we didn't have certain technology a lot of times when we're talking we're talking on regular telephones Mm. and so i would every day i would write up a code so we could have a conversation in code on the phone that the colombian whoever was listening to our phone calls couldn't intercept who was listening to our phone calls members of the phone company who was paying them cali cartel okay so if i had a conversation that said something like the frogs are jumping on the lily pad that is next to the tree fort. The frogs was the code for the Columbia National Police. The lily pad was an airport that was located with the name uh, that had the name of a forest in it. Okay. Mm. So it might have meant the Columbia National Police are gathering together right now at the airport, and this is the name of the airport. Why? Because they're going to go on a feeding frenzy because the flies are coming out because it's going to rain tonight. Mm. And whoever listening couldn't figure out what I was saying, okay? But the rain meant that there might be firepower on the other end, meaning the bad guys might have guns. So you guys had to become like the mobsters on the phone in this country as opposed to the other way around. That's a great analogy, and I'm going to steal it from now on for the rest of my life to be able to tell it. We were the mobsters creating the code. And it's really funny because uh, Internal Affairs came and did an investigation on one of the agents because somebody alleged that <laughs> we abused somebody's rights. And they said, well, wh- how did you do that? I said, look, we didn't do any of that. And we handled... No, it wasn't abusing someone's right. We abused the security privileges of the embassy. Somebody made a complaint. And I was already out of the country by then, but, but I got interviewed. I said, quite the opposite. We took steps. Sure, we talked about international investigations on an open line, but here's the code. And come to think of it, because I save everything. Here are the codes for every day for 45 days that you're talking about. So you tell me if I have this conversation about the frogs on the lily pad that are next mm. to the tree fort and uh, it's it's raining and the flies need to eat or something like that. You know, you tell me if you can figure it out. So those codes ended up saving a guy from being suspended. Wow. A high-level person that was in charge at the time was accused of not following protocol. But these were the certificates that were given out. This is very similar to the Pablo Escobar certificate yeah. that was put together uh, by the team where a lot of people who were involved in the investigation were uh, were honored. And um, I'm holding that up to the screen yeah, for yep. people to see. So but you see it says cool. Special Agent Kenneth McGee, and it talks. And you'll see on the left side uh, of your viewing audience, it's um, written in English. And on the right side, it's written in Spanish. So this award was given to a lot of Colombian police officers. And this that award is very similar to the one that we did with Pablo Escobar. Very, Let's get back cool. to the Cali cartel. Yeah. Why did, why did Pablo Escobar go down? Well, we'd like to say it was the DEA. We'd like to say it was the Columbia National Police. But it wasn't just us. It was a team. 
It was a team of a lot of people. And sometimes on a team, you're not a mem- you might not have a member of the team, but you're definitely going to take advantage. Let me give you a sports analogy. Yankees are playing the Red Sox. They hate each other, right? They hate mm-hmm. each other, right? Um, but they play every game of the season, and we're going down to the end of the season, right? And all of a sudden, the Yankees are tied with the Detroit Tigers to win the division title. And the Detroit Tigers are playing the Red Sox that day. Who do the Yankees want to win that They're game? For Reds, for the Red Sox. They're, so the the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. Well, I can tell you this: we did not work with the Cali Cartel. We didn't. You hear Anyone that, YouTube commenters? Yeah, we I don't did want not to hear otherwise. We did not work with them. <laughs> we took advantage of the steps that they took in their world. While they were pursuing Pablo Escobar, Ken, there, Ken, this this is a safe space. You can tell me if you worked with them. So I'm going to tell I, you more. I promise you. Like I, if you work I, with them, it's cool. We'll I'm going to tell you more. No, because it didn't happen. You sure. But I could be like some of those guys. Every now and then, I meet them in the airport, and they say, "Yeah, I served in the service." Oh, what'd you do? I can't tell you. <laughs> Top secret. You know, and I'm like, okay, and then. You know what did they do? They they worked at uh, a naval base in. Um, Coronado yeah. off the coast of San Diego, and uh, they were um, map makers. Yeah, know? trying to like, trying to sound important. Exactly. I yeah. Anytime every, anybody ever says, "I can't tell you," and they get that look, and they say, "I can't tell you." Sometimes oh, it's legit, but I I understand exactly what you mean. There's plenty yeah. of people I've gotten that look from where it's not. Yeah, yeah, but the guys that are legit don't say it that way. That most of the time they just don't go there. Unless they have a podcaster sitting across from them who's asking a question and they're not sure if we're on camera yet or if or if we are on camera, they're like very taken aback by the question. That has happened. Make my day. <laughs> anyway. So uh back to back to what I was saying. So what happened was the Kali Cartel wants to eliminate Pablo Escobar and they helped fund the group that was called Los Pepes, mm. which in Spanish was an acronym. It stood for People Persecuted by Pablo Escobar. Okay? And they funded Los Pepes. And Los Pepes were involved. There were Sicarios. There were people that were funded. There were hitmen. Uh, there was there was bombing experts. There was all sorts of people that were people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. But basically what it was was a shell company for Cali Cartel. cartel. Yeah. It wasn't even a company. It was an it was an or it was a group. It would be like um you know, like um, an informal group that created this name, Los Pepes, and they would kill Pablo Escobar. They, they'd kidnap his nanny for his kids uh, or a homeschool teacher or a kindergarten teacher. Whoever worked and surrounded themselves or worked with the Escobar family, they killed him. They killed seven of his attorneys, I think, like in a week. That's a lot of attorneys. Yeah, that could have been whoever touched and helped Pablo. It could have been on signing a, uh, a deed for a building he bought. Anybody that was associated with Pablo, they would kill. Mm. And they would also blow up buildings that they thought were owned by Pablo Escobar. They blew, they, they blew up his warehouse that destroyed cars and works of art and things of that nature. They did all sorts of things to make things miserable for Pablo. So he, he had it coming from every end. But we as DEA said, let's just take advantage of this. It's happening. It's not like we're going to be able to stop it. They wanted to eliminate Pablo Escobar, so we marked their moves. I kiddingly said to Joe Toft once, 
I said, I think we could solve the national debt. I said, by how? I said, if we had T-shirts made saying Los Pepes or something like that, we could sell them. We could sell them and make millions of dollars because people are loving Los Pepes. They were like a vigilante group that were out there trying to rid the world of Pablo Escobar. But why? Only so they could continue their criminal empire right. working with the Cali cartel. Or the Cali cartel was the, basically just the just a subsidiary. It was a so, shell company, basically. So Los Pepes did a lot of things. And uh, it was because of Los Pepes. It wasn't because of the United States government. And it wasn't because of the Colombian National Police. It was because of Los Pepes that Pablo sent his family to Germany. All right, so so let let's go there because you we opened up the I don't know if this is going to be two podcasts or one. We'll see how long we're going here, but you opened up the beginning of our conversation talking about that flight to Frankfurt, Germany. And this was in 1992, is that it? Yes. Okay. November of 92. So November of 92, at this point Escobar has been he's gone totally mad. The country is turning against him. Los Pepes are out there. Or at their peak of killing every killing yeah. everyone around. What was that? I said, yeah. Yeah. So Los Pepes is at their peak of killing everyone around him, and Pablo is starting to lose some of his own men. Obviously, through that, he's losing some influence. Cali Cartel is taking some of his market share. He's still sending a lot out, but he's getting worried, and so he decides that his family, for their safety, needs to take safe haven in another country. And he exactly. picks. Why did he pick Germany? Well, that's a great question. Let me clarify something. It was 93. It wasn't 92. I misspoke. Okay. 93. Um, and what happened was he picked, he didn't pick, they picked London and Frankfurt, Germany. So they had tickets to go to both countries. Nobody knew where they were going to go first. They were being escorted at that time by the government of a what's called the Fiscal General the um, uh, Fiscalia, which is like the attorney general's office. That's basically what it's like. They had bodyguards assigned to the family temporarily because things were just out of control. The government was worried if something happened to the family, Pablo might turn around and say, oh, right. you guys did it and cause all sorts of chaos and destruction. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a very interesting plot that the government of Colombia was working with us, but part of the government of Colombia was protecting Pablo's family and would not relate the information as to what was happening. So all we knew was he was going to London or Frankfurt. And I got tickets to London and to Frankfurt, myself and two Colombian police officials. And, and we, why were you picked to do this? Because I was in the group. Um, and I, um, um, at the time, at the time, Pena, I think, had to leave the country the next day to go to the United States. Pena was out of the country when Pablo went down. Um, when Pablo died that day, Pablo mm. or, uh, Javier was out of the country, and he obviously came back very quickly. But in the show, they show this as the plane ride is taken by Steve Murphy. But that was you. Yes, it right. was. Okay. Yeah, I think Narcos... Uh, compartmentalized a lot of characters yes. and built them into Steve and Javier. I don't even think they gave Joe Toft any recognition in the movie. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they had Steve follow the family. 
And I think it may, they made it look like it was months before or some time before. It was so fast after the trip to Columbia, or I'm sorry, to Frankfurt and the return to Columbia. It was just a few days. Right, it was where he days. was killed. So, yeah. so they go, they get on this flight. Let me, let me follow, yeah, yeah, let me follow yeah. up the track there. So yep. they get on this flight. We didn't know where they were going to go. Um, and so me, I just got a little duffel, a little backpack. And I also had another shoulder bag that had a camera built into it. Mm. So I had the camera built into it and I could just press a button on the shoulder, um, my shoulder strap and it would take photographs. And I'm looking right now down here at all the photographs you took on that flight. It's pretty wild including of their passports and everything, but mm -hmm. there's just all and, these. And there's a story how I got a picture of their passports in a minute. So, uh, yep, I, so I'm following the family, the German, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Colombian police officers, they're on the flight with me, and we're just like tourists on the plane. And we're watching every move that Pablo makes. And we keep on seeing this one guy come up to him and talk to him, and we weren't sure what he was. It turned out he was a reporter that somehow stumbled on the fact that uh, that the Escobars were going to be on that plane and took advantage of it and started to talk to him and interview him. And we were trying to figure out who he was. And uh, one of the Colombian National Police officers got into a conversation with him on the side uh, and in the airplane and said, what's that all about? And he goes, oh, I'm an international correspondent. And so that was one strange twist to it. Uh, and then, so they got on the plane. I was picked because... I was a backup supervisor. I was just one of the agents in a group, and I just said, no one else can go. Um, I forget where Steve was that day, but uh, I think Steve might have been at the airport with me, and then um, I get on the plane, take off. We fly to Germany. I'm watching them. I'm taking pictures with my camera. And what did you just have to, like, press something here, or, like, how did Yeah, the... it was literally I could have the strap like this. I Like, you know, how some people will have a shoulder... A yeah. shoulder camera bag, and I'd have my hand like this, like holding the strap, and I just go like this, press like that. So I'm looking at again. I was looking at the pictures while you were putting that here, and I'll put them in the corner of the screen as well. But like, this is like mid-flight, and you're like turning around to like take a picture like this. Yeah, like, how could, are you getting? Or that? I could be walking down. Keep in mind, the passport photos are another set of photos I took, and right, I'll tell you about right, that. Right. But I'm walking down the aisle, and I'm just clicking the pictures. Or I'd stand up sometimes, and I'd stretch, and, I, and I'd, I'd stand up sometimes, and I'd stretch, and I'd just press the button. And, uh, you know, it's they were regular 35-millimeter cameras. They weren't—it was film. It wasn't digital stuff. Right. So we're following the family to Germany. I'm watching this guy— and it's a long flight. We stopped in Caracas briefly. And the Caracas military was all lining the runway as well because what's one of the fears? Los Pepes learns that Pablo's family's on the airplane and they try and take the airplane out. Or some guerrilla terrorist group working out of Venezuela or somewhere over in that side of South America decides to do something. Everybody was at a very heightened sense of security. Because once the Escobars show up at the airport, they were followed by an entourage. Right. And there was press, there was everybody. Cuts out of the bag. It, it wasn't point. a secret anymore. Yeah. It wasn't a secret. So we fly to Germany. We land after we go uh, Bogota to Caracas to Frankfurt. We land in Frankfurt, and the plane stops mid-runway. 
and German authorities get on. And I'm looking as we're taxing down the runway after it stopped, right before it stopped, there's tanks, there's police cars <laughs> on both sides. They had this, they had this unbelievable setup of security. They take the Escobars off the plane. They wish them away, whisk them away, and then we pull into the gate. The DEA agents from Germany meet me, and and the Colombian police officials, and uh, we wait and wait and wait. But before I got off the plane, I went and sat. Because the Escobars are out of there now, right? I went and sat in their chair, and I start rifling through the the pouch that's in front of the chair. Oh, do you where, have that? Yeah, where yeah. there's pull. This is crazy. I just remembered that. So I go, I go rifling through that area and see. Did they leave any documents? Did they? She left her gloves. I found her gloves on the plane. She probably had a few of those. Yeah, she had a couple of them, and then, uh, and then. Um, just there was chewing gum wrappers and everything, and there were these pieces of paper, and one of them um, um, dealt with uh, dealt with a note that he had written. The son. The son. Uh, the son had written this note. Do you and know if it's the son or the mother who wrote it? I think it's the son because I think he probably spoke better English. Okay. And turn that mic to you just a little bit while you read this. I think it was the son. Okay. And um, it says basically. Those are some serious glasses, I got to tell you. I'm impressed. Oh, they're cool. Yeah. Oh, it's magnet too. It's amazing. We have a friend who is in Frankfurt. He said that he will be looking for us so he can help us. His name or his name is Oscar Rattori. He is a journalist, but he isn't coming for interview. He's coming because he knows somebody in Colombia who, who is spelled H-O, can give us the help we need. He said that he will be here at 8 a.m. So if he asks for us, please let him know that we are fine and tell him that we need his help. Tell him to call Gustavo de Grief. Gustavo de Grief was the attorney general, the head of the Fiscalia. I take that back. The chief prosecutor of the state. Um, I'll put they, this they, in the corner of the screen. Sure, by the they way. call that the fiscalia, and those haven't been seen in in decades. I just pulled those out in regards to doing some additional research on Pablo Escobar. And so you just took this and got to keep it. Well, I made copies of it, and I got to be honest with you, it's been thirty years. I don't know how that ended up in my Pablo Escobar file, because normally I would have put that in a case file. I think probably I made a Xerox of it and there was no way to put punch holes in it and have it placed in our case file perfectly. You follow me? Yeah. It would have gotten lost in there. So yeah. I think I just kept it. I had I had asked you earlier and I think you said you were going to get to it, but I just want to make sure to cover the base, like why they thought they were going to be able to get, I mean, you're going to talk about in a second, like what happened when they got on the ground and how you got them back to Columbia. But why did they even think that they could get through in in Germany. Like, why was Germany going to take the family of the most wanted criminal in the world, like, in asylum? Right. Because of, I think some of those reasons we spoke about before, about Germany, Germ Germany changing some of their views and things of that nature, but it backfired on them, backfired tremendously on them. And what happened was once they ended up in Germany, they were whisked off the plane, and very quickly, they were denied admission 
to the country. There were four people on that plane. There was Juan Pablo, Pablo Escobar's 16-year-old son. There was a little girl by the name of Manuela, and um, she was Pablo Escobar's daughter, approximately nine. And then Pablo Escobar's wife, Victoria. Uh, her nickname was Tata, T-A-T-A. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pablo Escobar's son, Juan Pablo's girlfriend. And uh, it's my understanding he's married to her today and wonderful family, and they live in Argentina. So it was a, he, he kept the same girl that he had met when, when he was a 16-year-old kid. Um, so they ended up getting denied admission, and so they immediately appealed on humanitarian reasons and claimed political asylum because they were being pursued by a organization that wanted to kill them. Los Pepes. Mm. And keep in mind, the Escobar family was all on the run for a long time. And the Los Pepes were looking to kill them. Right. And they would have killed them. And it wouldn't have been a pretty death. They would have, had they gotten to him before Pablo died, they would have probably tortured them in a way that would have infuriated Pablo Escobar just to make him even angrier. Because Los Pepes, all they cared about was eliminating Pablo. And they didn't care about anything else. Like I said, they killed so many people. Again, I will repeat it. For those people out there in social media world, we didn't work with the Cali cartel and we didn't work with Los Pepes. Okay. We monitored their activities. Mm -hmm. And it's important because if you didn't, you know, the, for the greater good, that's what makes this all a chess game. And that is this. Uh, it's interesting. We talk about uh, uh, a chess game because the head of the Kali cartel was called the chess man. man. Mm. And when he was arrested, the headlines was chess checkmate. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> but uh, it's a chess game. But one, one team has got the white pieces and the other team's got the black pieces. Mm. Okay. Let's just say we, the DEA, were um, the black pieces. We had to follow rules, and the white pieces don't have to follow any rules. So that's why a battle like this takes so long, and that is we're following certain rules, and that is this. We're not going to sponsor and sanction people blowing up buildings and killing people for the good of the greater or whatever. No, we didn't. Could that happen in other organizations, someplace else, other countries, other government? Possibly. But I will tell you, it didn't happen with DEA. But you still were okay with it happening. Well, you we didn't were, sponsor it, but you said, eh, I enemy, enemy. I friend. didn't say we were okay with it. I said we monitored it and took <laughs> advantage of it. Right. Okay? Because keep in mind, remember I talked to you about that other group? We had group one and group two? Yep. The other group was against the Kali Cartel looking for the Kali Cartel people. So we were still searching for Kali Cartel members. Right. We were still searching for them. But the focus was on Pablo Escobar with that group, and it was the world focus. And then once Pablo went down, then our main focus. So I guess what I'm saying is um, you, you, can, uh, you can own a beautiful home, right? And your focus is on remodeling the inside before you paint the outside. Painting the outside is still important, and you're going to get to that, but you want to remodel the inside first. However, if somebody came along and said, uh, 
hey, um, I've got some information on a good deal of paint. You might buy all the paint ahead of time in anticipation of being able to paint the exterior of our home. Right. Maybe it's a simplistic analogy, but no, we took advantage of the situation. We monitored it, and any actions that were taken by Los Pepes, we would hear just like you would. They wouldn't, or just like the media would, and just like everybody else would hear. We wouldn't sit there and say, Los Pepes is going to go and kill so-and-so. Mm. If we did, we'd have an obligation to stop that. We would. Did and you we, stop some? And we would. Did you stop I don't, some? I don't recall that happening, but I can tell you on more than one occasion in Columbia, when we knew an informant was going to get killed, if we had information, we'd pull the informant out, we'd send him to another location, we'd give him money, and we'd mm. stop working with him or do whatever we could do to prevent him from being executed. Was it when, when they get off the plane? That, ha- that happened often, by the way. When, when they get off the plane, though, in Frankfurt, and you said they were denied, and then they tried to say well, we're political asylum, which they eventually got denied, was it anything like they showed, in this case, Steve Murphy in the show playing your role, where, I, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's been a while, where he had to go to, like, some of the agents and be like, yo, that's Pablo Escobar's family. Like, I'm with the DEA. You can't fucking let him in here. Like, did you have to play that role at all, or were you just sitting there on the ground waiting for orders? <laughs> no. Uh, um, Hollywood takes their creative liberties. Sure. That's what I figured. But Yeah. It wasn't me that said, that's Pablo Escobar's family. You can't let him in. But it was me and DEA representing a whole where I'm speaking on behalf of the DEA from Bogota, speaking to the German officers are the German, the DEA agents that were assigned to Germany and collectively as a whole, as well as other communications from the embassy in in Bogota, sending messages to the embassy in Germany and the consulates in the various areas saying, this is the situation. DEA does not want this to occur you don't want this occur. You don't want to bring this to your country. So we were providing information as to why it's not a good idea for them to enter the country because we wanted them back. We wanted them back. Mm. And um, because what happens if they end up in Germany? Well, the- number number one is it harms our investigation. Number two, the truth is Los Pepes would have gone and found them and they would have killed them in Germany. In Germany. So I mean, there's there's international conflict problems. There, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about them getting expelled, and they thought they were safe there, but they weren't safe anywhere. This was going to have a dynamic ending, one way or the other. And the Escobar family, his wife, son, daughter, and future daughter-in-law that he actually never knew they got married, but he he had met her. Uh, mm. That story is well documented. Um, because he didn't want his son to get involved in a relationship so young, so early, and be so committed. He said, ah, oh, there's a lot of women out there in the world <laughs> experience, you know, that kind of thing. But no, he didn't take that lesson from his father. He went and married this woman and, and became a productive member of society. But my point is, the convincing wasn't actually like Hollywood has. it. say, look, you know me, I'm with DEA. You can't let these people in. It was a more of a a team effort where I'm saying, pass this word. You need to say this. You need to say this. You need to say this. And remember, I might have told you earlier about them not wanting. I did tell you earlier about you know their their laws now on making sure rights are preserved and things of that nature. So we we're just waiting. We weren't sure what was going to happen. 
we technically did not have the influence to say to the German government, don't let them in. Mm. We requested. We requested. And keep in mind, once they got kicked out, Pablo started making phone calls to the German embassy in, in, uh, in Bogota. It's a small little embassy, yeah. you know? You know, you son of a bitches, I'm going to blow up your embassy <laughs> yeah. and do all, whatever he said, all those things. But um, so that was one of the things that transpired. Collectively, it was a group. Did I speak my piece? Absolutely. Did the German, the German agents, our DEA German agents, listened. And then they conveyed our, because they were like, you know, they're like 13 hours before they had no clue this was going on. Mm. And we had been working on it around the clock not just this, but the whole Escobar thing for ages. How long ahead? You had said it was really quick, but like, was it like a day or two ahead where you knew she was going to be going somewhere? No, it was that morning. Literally that day. It was that morning. So you had an informant tip you off, I guess. Uh, Yeah, basically. And word got out somehow. I mean, because like I said, ultimately at the airport, the press showed up. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how the press got there, but, but your ticket was already bought and you were on your way. Two tickets. Point. I had yeah. one to both places, which is uh, from when you get to government paperwork, the part that you never see in the movies was a pain in the ass to process. Why did you buy two tickets? Some Dean <laughs> counter in Washington, D.C. wants to know. You know, oh why did God. you do this? You had to pay a cancellation fee and all this stuff. I'm like, God help us. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> you know, but a guy like Joe Toff just says, don't worry about it. Just. Throw the paperwork in. We'll and figure it out. He later. looks at the administrative officer and says, take care of it. And so we go on. So um, the goal was to get him kicked out. And that's exactly what happened. How so they long did that take start to end, like for the appeal to be denied? Less than 20 hours. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they, they never got out of the airport. They never got out of a holding area. Right. So they just sent him back on the next flight to Columbia. Yeah. And what happened was they seized all their passports um, mm. and they put two German immigration officers on the plane with them because they were being kicked out. The German immigration officers maintained the passports. The German immigration officers knew we were federal agents in Columbia National Police. Mm. So they knew who we were. We knew who he was, but he obviously didn't tip off. They, there were two or three German immigration officials, did not tip off the fact that we were on the plane. So you went on the plane ride back too. Only DEA agent to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the Escobar's family two days in a row. But they didn't make you on Courtesy that? Of Luke, the family Luke didn't Tanza. make you when no. you were on that? No, there were like there were like two or three hundred people and, and I think one day These I, pictures are close though, man. These yeah, are I, close range. And one day You're a memorable looking guy. Yeah, and well I looked a little different. Yeah, the handlebar nest mustache and everything back then. I would have remembered that shit. Yeah, and uh, but you know, you wear a different jacket. You turn a jacket inside out. You wear a baseball hat. You do this. You do that. <laughs> you you walk a little bit differently. You don't make eye contact. A lot of the times, uh, when people can identify people later, you learn this as an undercover agent. If you make eye contact with somebody, it plants something in their brain subliminally that they might remember you later. If you never make eye contact, like I didn't make eye contact with them mm. and tell a story I'm going to tell you in a second, they, 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 you just become another moving part in the, in the environment, in the atmosphere, people walking past them back and forth, back and forth. You know, you picked me up at the airport today. Um, 
when you were walking towards me and, and there was that pickup truck you were talking about, whatever. Do you remember what the driver looked like? You never, I didn't. I never looked at the driver. Yeah, you never made eye contact with him. No. But if you made eye contact with him and you dropped me off tonight, you might say, hey, that's the same guy I saw earlier mm. today, that kind of thing. So don't make eye contact with him. You become more more transparent, so to speak, uh, a wall, f- flower on wallpaper, on a wallpaper wall. So- um, so they end up getting kicked out. Um, and we, we've got our tickets already. And at that p- time they wanted them out. And this guy, uh, the, the reporter I was telling you about Oscar Rattori, he is running around filming things all <laughs> in the airport of all of this stuff going down. He caught me on film, I'm sure several times, <laughs> along with dozens and dozens of other people. They delayed this aircraft a few hours so the government could make their decision, mm. right? And uh, I'll never forget this. As I'm walking on the plane, as the Escobars are already on the plane walking on, and I'm, I hear this screaming, you can't do that to me. I have rights in broken English, yelling at the German soldiers. The German officials grabbed his video camera, everything he was filming, and took it. Ooh. And, Sucks to suck. Yeah. And I spoke to the German agent. That, I say German agent, the DEA agent in Germany. Right. I spoke to him later on the phone. I said, thanks for all your help, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, what happened back there? And he goes, they seized his camera and said that it was a security concerns filming within the airport. Keep in mind, Munich, Olympics. Oh, right. Keep in mind terrorism. Take in mind this, take in mind that, all that stuff. So they seized it. I don't think he ever got his film back because I never have seen any footage of what he filmed that day. Oh, that shit's gone. Yeah. They didn't give that back. No, I don't think so. So here we are. We're on the plane. The German immigration... Uh, officers are on the plane. They got a handful of passports. And I said to him on the side, I said, can I see the passports? He goes, sure. And I said, I'm going to go photograph them. He goes, okay. So he slipped this, he slipped me the passport so nobody could see. And I went into the bathroom and I pulled that camera out of the undercover bag that I was taking pictures. And I just start clicking off photographs Mm. because I'm thinking, okay, where they visited before. So I want pictures of their visas uh, what their all their identification information was, what a good photograph it was of them, even though we could have maybe have gotten them from the, the Colombian National Police. Keep in mind, Pablo Escobar's corruption spread so far that it wouldn't be behind him to say, um, get a hold of somebody at the passport office and tell them to destroy the records of my son's passport. Can we put these on the screen, well, or is this because this is passport information? Yeah, what I would do is I, I can bla- I can blare out yeah, certain areas. Yeah, I would do that. Okay, I've shown my DEA creds on, and um, my my manager blurred blurred this this part out. Um, Julian, this part right? They blurred this out, and they blurred it a little bit, so it wasn't right. like putting identification out on the line. All right, I may need so to everybody could see it when, when I do it. Okay, so here I am. I've got their passports. I go into the bathroom and I start clicking off all these photographs because I didn't know if I'd ever get this opportunity again, which I never did. No one else ever did either. And as I just finished up, I take the passports, I put them in my pocket, I open the door, 
And there's Juan Pablo sitting there. He's the next guy in line, ready to go in the restaurant. Now we got eye contact. I looked at him eye to eye, and I said, perdóname. And uh, (laughs) so he walked by. Make a long story short, um, we land in Bogota once again. They stop the airplane en route to the... uh, the on the tarmac, take the Escobar family off. I stayed on the airplane with the Colombian two police officers that I went with. And then the Escobars are whisked to the local hotel called the Tecandama. And then from that point, the rest is history. Pablo starts making phone calls. Ultimately, some phone calls were triangulated. Ultimately, he was killed on that rooftop in Medellin, Colombia by a Colombian National Police officer. And we're going to have to bring you back to discuss all the details of that, the details of the Cali cartel and that full investigation and how that went down, as well as some of the things that happened after you left Colombia, because i got to get you the hell out of here on a plane. I wish I didn't have to right now, but we're literally, we got to go to the airport right away. This has been fucking amazing. It's, it's like a history lesson, as well as like incredible perspectives throughout it. So... I'm so, so glad you came into town, and, and I think people are going to enjoy the hell out of probably what's going to be two podcasts. i got to check later. Might right. be one. We'll see. But, Ken, amazing stuff, man. Thank you. Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate it. And, again, I will remind your viewers, if they want to hear some more stories, go to the DEA guy on TikTok. And uh, my manager's got some other things brewing as well. So we'll stay in touch. And thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your insight. And to all you folks out there. Share this podcast, and if you have any questions, fire them out there. Thanks a lot. Take care, and God bless, and be safe. Throw them down. That was beautifully said, by the way. Throw them down in the comments section if you have questions, and I'm going to put the link to your TikTok page, which I would highly recommend to people. I want you to start making YouTube shorts as well, by the way. We'll talk about that afterwards, but I'm going to put a link to that down in the description so people can go check that out and follow we got to get to the airport i don't want to be stuck in philly for the night it's the worst airport in america too anyway that said you know what it is give it a thought get back to me peace